Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. Hi, Andrew. How are you? A lot happening. I know. What can I tell you about what is happening at the moment? Do you see it? Did you see what WorkSafe have just done in Victoria? Yeah, it's exciting. I think we've been talking about this for months, can I just say, but it yeah. is genuinely exciting. Months, probably close to a year, saying that the safety regulator are extending their arms into other areas of law, which traditionally weren't. And what we've seen only two or three days ago is WorkSafe have issued... Yeah, it happened yesterday. Yeah, issued, made a prosecution against a director, an older worker and a corporation. Yeah, so two companies, the director and the older worker, because they sexually harassed seven younger employees. Yeah, the, the youngest is young as 14. It's just awful yeah. stuff. My point about it is, for us as lawyers, this is what we've been saying. As you see psychological hazards on the march, what you see is now with a positive duty sitting there, a prohibition against yep. sexual harassment, you have the factual foundation for a regulator, a safety regulator, because... Australian Human Rights Commission has been hamstrung through the legislation. But you see a safety regulator who can now come in and be aggressively pursuing a prosecution, a criminal prosecution. In this case, probably not because this is a toe-in-the-water case, isn't it? Yeah, they've only filed Section 25 and 26 charges. Which are are individual Um, charges. Yeah, so primary breaches as opposed to reckless conduct. Yeah, but this, if you can remember back as far as all the drilling when the first reckless endangerment case came in, very big fines, nearly the maximum fines that came through, but there was no resistance to a suspended sentence for the wrongdoer in it. WorkSafe always start off with putting a bit of a toe in the water. Yeah. And then once they've got a bit of success behind them, the steam builds yep. and we'll see more aggressive prosecution. So and also remember both unions and plaintiff law firms will be using mechanisms like 131 to say to regulators, yeah. you haven't prosecuted this and you ought to have. Yep go ahead and do it. And they'll be using that as a collateral pressure that they do with trying to settle a civil matter. So it's going to be a mechanism of seeing used. Yeah. other thing is wage theft could be off to the High Court. Yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting case. I, don't so, know, I think it's got a pretty bad <laughs> argument behind it, but it's an interesting case. <laughs> so last year the Wage Theft Inspectorate laid 47 charges against a business trading under the name the Macedon Lounge for various underpayments of 7000 and of different entitlements. They have now come back and said, look, this whole thing is invalid. It's an invalid investigation, invalid charges because of a inconsistency between the Fair Work Act and the Victorian legislation. And under Section 109, it just can't happen. That's, that's, so Section 109 of the Constitution, which says where a state piece of legislation is inconsistent with a subject matter that is dealt with in a piece of federal legislation, the state legislation won't stand. And... The reference in this is to work choices and the arguments that came and part of work choices didn't succeed when Howard was towards the end of his term and was overly aggressive in his industrial relations strategy. The difference here is that it's the nature of the the penalties which are being imposed. So the argument is... And criminal conviction. Yeah, criminal conviction in Victoria versus civil penalty. The argument sits in the substance matter. They're both dealing with the same thing and you can't elevate a criminal conviction above... A civil, I think that'll be interesting viewing. So yeah, so they're see. trying to seek for the fit, uh, the high court to get involved. So look, watch this space. We're probably a year away from hearing about that. But let's jump on to the next case, which is the CFMEU case. <laughs> yeah, standing in front of a concrete pool. You've got to be brave, don't you? Oh, just it's just so crazy. So this was, it's an appeal case. So originally 
the two permit holders came in, didn't decide to go through the normal right of entry way, <laughs> climbed up Strange on the pipe, you know, the very unusual blocked the concrete pour enough so that they had to abandon the pour and pour out the concrete. And they were found to be obstructing and hindering the construction site and they've come back and said, no, that was not our intention. No, we were trying to make it safe yeah. by standing underneath a concrete pool. We, we, <laughs> we raised genuine work, health and safety issues. And the court said that's bullshit. Yeah, because they had nothing to do with concrete pool. They raised stuff like the locations of the toilet were wrong. Yeah. What has that got to do with Well, if you pour pool? the concrete too far, you block the door. To the yeah, that was a nonsense argument that was always going to fail. It's nice to see the court agrees with yeah. Off Northern Territory, <laughs> biggest penalties ever over there. Yes, five times higher than their previous one. Um, it was an interesting case because they originally pleaded to reckless endangerment, so it was an excavator case. Someone had come to That's Kaya. Category 1. Can I say the difference between OHS and mm. WHS is that's a Category 1 offence, so it's between 3 to 3.5 million, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. Similar to our reckless endangerment, we yeah. don't have categories in Victoria. Yeah, but so they were originally charged with Category 1 and pled it's to primary juice. Yeah, yeah, primary juice. And it essentially involved hiring out an excavator from Titan Plant, but when they loaded the post the excavator on there, the basket on the excavator was not restrained and it fell onto the, I guess, the client. He died immediately and they were found to have failed to not have any processes for unloading and loading the excavator, no processes to secure everything, and no exclusion zone, which is like the obvious thing. But look, can I just say to you, the example is, and once again, I, I guess you probably get tired of Nina and I harping on, this is an example of jurisdiction by jurisdiction. The tariff, that is the measure of sentence you're likely to get, mm. has doubled in the last 12 months. Yeah. So this is a $960,000 fine for a corporation. And $180,000 for Yeah, and it's for a $1.5 million tariff. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what you're doing is they've gone from traditionally, which would be 30 to 40%, of a total sentencing for a first offence, jump straight to 60 or 70%. The tide is changing and I think people need to understand that the punishments now are significantly higher in the last 12 months than they've ever been before and I think the tariffs have almost doubled. Yeah, and I think the court's also saying that people trying to cut deals with the regulator to ensure a law fine, that's not going to make it. Even if you've played to something lesser, depending on the significance of it, they're going to still give you a really hefty fine. Yeah. Well, let's go on to Heinz and some workers' compensation. Now, Heinz normally means beans, but it means... And tomato more, sauce. And tomato sauce, <laughs> but it means something a bit different here because this is a case of somebody who's a wrongdoer who worked for Heinz who was repeatedly called in and questioned over the same matter. Yeah, so I think they had a history of issues with food hygiene quality, yeah. and there was like a new investigation for it. So they were investigating it and the employee filed a workers' comp claim. Hines tried to say, no, reasonable management action. We're investigating the incident. And while the investigation is definitely a reasonable control, the manner in which they did it was completely ridiculous. Which was repeatedly called upon this worker to answer similar questions. Yeah, and called into many meetings. So yeah. it wasn't just one to put it. It was like keep coming in and asking the same questions over and over so again. So I can go back to what reasonable management is because it's nice to so – I just saw the choir in the background put me on for a second. But I can go back to reasonable management action and just remind. It is you're doing something which is fair based on the nature of the conduct that has occurred. So in here we're doing an investigation because there is conduct that goes to quality and food hygiene, okay? So you're entitled to investigate, particularly where there's a history behind it. The next thing is, is the process that you adopt fair? Now, that will normally be tested by your own policies and procedures. So if you breach those, you're a goner. But in the absence of that, 
any workers' comp tribunal will look at what is the process that has the least negative impact on the person who's involved because fairness, when it's a beneficial piece of legislation, which this is, to benefit workers is about not putting too many psychological hazards in the road of workers on the way to making a determination. Now, fairness with investigations is to prepare your matter, to provide a letter of allegations, to provide the letter of allegations before a person's attend, provide them with support, offer them any sort of mental health support they need prior to it, say that you're happy to do that afterwards, sit them in a meeting a day or two later after they've had a chance to review it, yeah. again, go through what the allegations are and then ask the person one allegation at a time <laughs> to give an explanation. You don't go back. Now, if it's an investigation, you may do all the investigative part before you come and give the letters of allegation and you may say to them, look, you've raised two or three matters which will require us to speak to other witnesses and when that happens, we will come back to you. Notice everything I'm doing is fair to the person who is the respondent in this. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So repeatedly asking the same questions because you don't like the answer you got the first time is, is A, dumb because it's clouding the evidential pathway, but D, it's not fair. So it will never be reasonable management action, and that's what they found. Exactly. Okay. Let's jump on to our next case. We've got, we've got some great cases today, I've got to tell you. <laughs> Linda Williams and Valley Healthcare and constructive dismissal. I think this is a really This is a woman who really got out of bed the wrong way, didn't she? Yeah. She's Am I allowed to say that? Look, it's nicer than what I would have said. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I might be able to take you down from the wall here. Yeah, so she was a HR manager who had – consistently complained about her workload, that she was taking on too much. She was quite a difficult employee. I don't think... An alleged difficult employee. <laughs> alleged. Can, I just, can I help you through this? No, there was a oh, just, I've got somebody outside conflict. waiting to receive the defamation. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, so the main thing is in order to support her, the employer decided to take away one part of her duties, which involved recruitment, so recruitment of new they actually consulted with her and talked to her at length a about, good thing to do. Yeah, about why they were doing it and, you know, why it was necessary. And she turned around and said, well, you're essentially dismissing me. I've got no choice but to resign because you're taking this adverse action against me. She lost. Can I just tell you that? So I went through university oh, with, a, with, a, with a friend who used to do case summaries and put lost or won at the bottom of them. <laughs> And she realised after she failed first year law, that wasn't probably a very good strategy. But in a case like this, you don't need anything more than that. She lost, and she lost because it's just rubbish. Yeah. Look, I think it's nuanced. So there are three times where employees are trying to push someone out and they take away duties. Definitely in those cases, it could be a constructive dismissal. But in a case where they've taken the time to find the best solution to support the employee and they're consulting with the employee, to find a way to move forward, not to get them out, there's no way that can be found to be constructive dismissal. No. All right, well, let's go on to our main topic, which is about when HR managers get into strife. What? And OHS managers yeah. too. And OHS managers. We're going to, I want to just look at what is the legislation and where you can get into trouble. So if we can start at the beginning. Fair Work Act provides what's called accessorial liability. That is somebody who participates in an action. And in this case, it's someone who is involved in the employer's contravention. That's what Yeah, what's or the, assisted in it. Yeah. Yeah. The second one is discrimination law, and obviously there is a direct liability for a person who does the wrong thing yeah. or supports a person doing yeah. the wrong thing because they are independently liable under discrimination. It's not accessorial, it's direct liability. Yeah. Under safety law, there's a mixture. There is discrimination provisions around being notified, being an HSR, or being notified about safety, a safety issue and then being treated adversely. Mm -hmm. Okay, very, very simple, reverse onus, so very similar to adverse action and that can be brought as a prosecution against an individual 
or a company, but it can also be brought against an individual who is an accessory. So there is accessory liability. But of course, what we just saw with WorkSafe in Victoria is, well, we can actually go after anybody who participates in a breach of safety under Section 25, 26, reckless endangerment. Okay. So we've got all these legal avenues which deal with HR managers and HR and OHS managers have always felt that they can't be touched because they're yeah. an advisory service. <laughs> and I just want to go through a couple of cases with Nina that shows that's actually not right. And what we tried to say and have over the last few months is this is a changing world. The role of HR managers is much more intrusive than it used to be. It's much more about grooming, developing, growing leadership, providing them skills, providing a source of evidence around what they should do. Yeah and a higher level of reliance on their expertise in the decision-making. Remember that because yeah. <laughs> that is the trigger that is leading to these prosecutions. So we start at the very beginning. Probably the place to start is Centennial, which is an old case where an HR manager was reluctant to challenge, did challenge their manager once about the people they'd made independent contracts from employees saying, don't think it's lawful. But the manager said they're going to do it and therefore she went ahead, not only did she support it, she went ahead and actually did it herself. Yeah, she was in all the meetings. So she got into trouble. Yeah, because she tried to say she didn't know about it. Yeah, well, she did lie as well, which was never a bright thing to do. I think then you go to NSH, which is a... Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Yeah, so you talk more about NSH. I think, like, the detailed facts are not as important, but I think the key thing is in this case, the HR manager actually did try to stand up and say, hey, I think this is wrong. I don't think we should be falsifying pay slips, was knocked back by the director. So she actually did try to reach out, but then went ahead and did it anyway. And there was a couple of other examples. You know, she questioned whether the pay rates were accurate because they seemed low. They said, just do it. And then she did it anyway. And she said, when it came down to the evidence, she said, look, I thought I tried to raise it and I didn't think I could go beyond that. It's a cultural thing. We can't actually talk against our boss. So she raised what can she I thought was reasonable Can ground. I just say, this is a really common thing. HR yeah. at the moment are increasingly being put under pressure to do things to try and achieve financial outcomes, mm-hmm. which are someone's cunning plan or idea. Yeah. And when they challenge, the look, you know, the hard look is given. So what happens is HR managers get bad information and they sit there and go, well, if nothing does happen, there's no trouble. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying to you, there are unions and fair work ombudsmen and all sorts of people around that someone will eventually do that. Two things happen when that happens. There's one is you are prosecuted. Two, your brand's destroyed for life. Yeah. So you get sacked by the employer for not telling because it's a fundamental breach of your contract of employment with them. But after that, your name's gone across the front page yeah. of the Herald Sun. You're over. And, and they can Google it too. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So be aware of it. Before we get the case about today, let's talk a little bit about Elliot and Nanda, which is the discrimination case. Yeah, so this one was, I believe, a government agency who had indirect knowledge that this doctor that they were sending people to to get assessed was sexually harassing employees. So they'd heard it here and there, but the person in the role didn't have that direct knowledge. And the court found that, look, that's not enough. It's enough that if the organisation knows about it, it could be imputed to the person making the agency knowledge. And look, can I just say, when you look at Kozarov's case, this mm. is once again, you know, the High Court case in Kozarov's only a year old. What happens when a case changes the world of law is that it permeates down in every different direction and it takes a while for court cases to align on each jurisdiction. That's what's going to happen with Kozarov. Kozarov's decision is a very simple decision that says when you're working in a high-risk environment, your method 
of preventing hazards is not waiting to identify them. It is to intervene and prevent the hazard arising. Yeah. So in this case, if you look at what Gosarov said, the common law claim is a winner in this case, by the way, but if you look at Gosarov said, so what does it actually mean here? What it means is there is no doubt, maybe not today or tomorrow, but soon a court is going to say, now that sexual harassment is prohibited yep. and it's a positive duty, that once you're seized in the knowledge of a risk with someone but you don't know it, your obligation is to inquire. Yeah. Your obligation is to find out about that environment and immediately stop sending people there. That's your obligation. Yeah. And this case doesn't go that far, but once again it shows... Because it's that, a lot older. Yeah, yeah. Once again it shows, though, with HR managers, the level of risk that exists. Why? Because most of the sensitive information in an organisation comes through you about people. That means you've got the heat map. You know what the risks are in the environment. But what this case says, and certainly what Kozarov says, is you have a duty to inquire. Beyond just the initial allegation as well. I think that's where a lot of people fall down. They just look at, you know, where does the allegation come from? We'll resolve that. That's you know, hands done, but the new respect at work and all those obligations means that's not enough. And 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 that's why we're seeing the regulators, safety regulators, getting involved because they've now got a good couple of benchmarks to say, well, you're not allowed to do it. You've got to show you're not allowed to do it. You've got to have a governance structure that proves and you don't. Well, you're already liable. All I've got to take is the next step to show you had knowledge and you're gone. Yeah. So that probably brings us to DTF, which is one of the more extreme examples, and we're not suggesting that any of our people out there do this, but DTF is an example of when a Fair Work Ombudsman starts the investigation, yeah. the HR manager is told to fix the numbers so they don't look so bad from underpaid. No, no, so, so the director was investigated first, ran overseas, Fair Work Ombudsman starts investigating everything else, and then the HR manager takes charge, tells the payer officer to fudge the numbers, have one record that's accurate, one's inaccurate, give that to Fair Work Ombudsman so that it makes it clear that people only work 38 hours and casuals only work normal hours, gives false pay slips to the employees as well, but threatens them that if they're not working... Uh, I didn't even say this was a good example. Yeah, I was like, if them that if they don't work more hours that there might be issues with their visa. Like, just terrible. And then at the end said, oh, I wasn't involved with all of this. I think you probably realised from that Nina's taken a view. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but, look, we, we've talked about DDF because it is very current, okay? Yeah. But it is the extreme end of it. I want you to go back to our earlier discussion, which is, when you are seized with any information that tells you there is a risk, whether it's a discrimination risk, a safety risk, an underpayment risk, there is absolutely no doubt that the law now is, as an HR or OHS manager, your duty is to investigate. Your duty is not to sit and go, mm-hmm. well, no one's complained. Yeah. You're on liability the moment you have that, that knowledge, and that means in your systems, as you collect evidence, I think you've heard me use the expression heat map a number of times, you've got to look at that heat map and say, Actually, I do have a duty to go and do something. And for sexual harassment discrimination, it is absolutely clear. For psychological hazards, it is absolutely clear. And honestly, that covers most of the level of risk we have with employees on a day-to-day basis. So this is not something any longer where we can go, don't worry about evidence, impressions are okay. You've got to have the evidence. And the second is the moment you become aware of risk, whether it is the profile of risk that sits somewhere or an actual factual risk, your obligation is to investigate. You don't do it, you'll be a name party. And it could be a prosecution. Yeah. 
All right. I reckon we've knocked over those cases. I can feel <laughs> yeah. my throat. Yeah, there's a try. lot of cases. Let's head off to the case study. Let's see if it goes up above our head today. <laughs> oh, no, no, okay. I'm sitting up straight if I get down here. <laughs> it's much harder. Okay, sorry, Dan. <laughs> Dan was a project manager at GD Matches Marketing, GDM. She headed high-risk reputational problems like data breaches for their international client base. The culture was highly pressurised. You worked the hours that were required. Sometimes that could be 15 to 16 hours a day and weekend work. The team involved some award-based workers and some not under awards. The 2IC Campbell was a tough, uncompromising character who was charismatic. He had several complaints of bullying, all investigated by HR, who found his behaviour was culturally necessary for the work undertaken. Jean was close to Ken, the head of HR. Ken had been in GDM since the beginning. He knew what was needed. Jean had a concern about Campbell and the young women in his team. She thought he was sleazy. She had seen him an after-hours drink and thought that much of his conduct was unwelcome. She raised it with Ken, who said no complaint had been made, therefore there was no evidence of the conduct being unwelcome. He said, Campbell is a key to your team's success. Without him, you will never drive this group to the urgent success you need. Following a campaign to manage a large health insurer's data breach, when Jean's team worked around the clock, drinks were provided in the boardroom great solution to it right both ken and jean saw campbell working on a young girl and it was clear she was uncomfortable he was plying her with drinks no one intervened the following day she resigned wow gdm sounds like the best place mm. <laughs> one of her work friends said she was sexually assaulted by campbell to jean who raised it with ken they spoke with the managing director realized it would be exceptionally damaging to their brand if it got out and agreed to speak privately to campbell to tone down his behavior all right, so here we go with the questions. Well, look, I know you look at me like that, but, gee, I don't reckon that's too far from some of the cases we've had come through the door. Anyway, oh. would the young girl have a sexual harassment claim? Yeah. Yes. Who would it be against, though? Well, it could be against a whole bunch of people. So definitely against the Campbell, Campbell who engaged in behaviour, but vicarious liability as well. She could bring it against the company and she could actually bring it against individuals that they yeah, because they yeah, were, definitely Ken. Definitely Ken, and I'm afraid for Jean because Jean knew of the issue and failed to do anything about it. Yeah. She may not be a party at the beginning, but she'd certainly become a party as soon as the first bit of evidence came out. So Jean, you are in. Okay. Yeah. Can I just talk about what the damages are? So I just think it's worth, you know, sexual assault is a touch-based sexual harassment, so it's over hundred thousand in general damages. Surely more by now. Oh no, it's in the two hundred thousand. Yeah. But, but it's certainly over hundred and fifty. But the tariff at the moment for touch-based is. Between 100 to 300 based on the severity of it. We're talking about general damages because it could be things like you um, never come back to work, economic loss, loss and, and aggravated like damages yeah. by the nature of the conduct. Yeah. I think if this is a woman who just, say, was on $100,000 a year, is unable to work for another couple of years with aggravated damages, you're probably looking at half a million dollars. Okay? Right. Is there a potential safety prosecution against two and what charges? Can I say this is a sneaky question because it, the fact is that Jean had already raised a discrimination-based argument under safe. Now, if Jean was treated badly, there's an, a safety argument. Jean wasn't treated badly. So we don't get to the discrimination provisions under safety law. But couldn't we do it under sexual harassment, just breach, just like the work safe one? Yeah, we can do it, but we do it under the primary duty one. Yeah. Which is where it would end up. And now that we've had this first case in Victoria, given the nature of the conduct... Could be a reckless one. I, think, I yeah. think this could be a reckless charge. And it could be a reckless against company, Campbell... Jean and Ken, okay. because this was a known risk. Yeah, so the fact that Jean raised it 
was not enough because she allowed it to continue happening, especially at the end. And can I just say that it goes to the heart of recklessness. So Mm -hmm. the fact is when you have a – so recklessness is about to undergo a change in a number of jurisdictions and it's going to adopt the gross negligence test that came out of Western Australia throughout the rest of Australia. Victoria hasn't agreed to adopt it, I might add. But at the moment, recklessness means that there is a risk of serious injury or harm. That person knew of that and was indifferent to it in the decision-making they did. Now, indifference doesn't mean they don't do something. Indifference means a sort of carelessness. So it can be, look, I've raised that, but I've done nothing more about it. Now, when you know someone is a sexual predator and the best you do is you agree to getting a chat for him to tone it down, it's way beneath the mark. I reckon Gene would escape reckless. I think Ken wouldn't. The managing director wouldn't and the company wouldn't and Campbell wouldn't, okay? You think Jean would escape it? I think Jean, because she's the person who raised it, the regulator would go, okay, you've you've done, there's no more action you could have taken. You should have been more of an advocate for it, but you've raised it. But that last time she didn't intervene, that's what she could have done. Sure, sure. So she could have stepped in and been like, even if it was, say, she thought it was dangerous, she could have just been like, oh, do you want to come grab something? Sure, sure. So I... I feel like that. Is well, there's a chance, out. but I, I'm telling you that's where the regulator lands. So we're going to disagree. But I, yeah, no, but it is where the regulator lands at the end of the day. Is there an underpayment issue, and could Jean and Ken be liable? An underpayment issue. Yeah, people were working 15 to 16 hours. Oh, a I forgot weekend. about. Yeah, that. no, no, no. Well, I thought we just. I was it. like, what are you Can talking I, about? Well, I think, seeing as we've seen the FSU go after NAB. Oh, yeah. Okay. So professional services businesses are the most at risk. If we look at the hours that we work, fortunately we pay remarkable wages. But <laughs> the question of whether Nina overtime fortunately doesn't come into it too much because she it's not reasonably overtime she does. That's for the public record. But my point is for that mid-level um, professional services businesses where it's hugely pressurised, and where people work extraordinary hours and marketing businesses, accounting businesses, legal business. There's a whole range of them. IT businesses do that sort of thing around large projects. If the FSU gets up against NAB, it will provide a precedent that could tear apart our industrial system. Yeah, but I disagree with you, Andrew. I don't think it's just about the money. I think the biggest question is, about whether it's reasonable. Please, no, I totally agree with you. Because just like that case we had with the meat industry, it's dependent on the individual. That's how you're supposed to do it. So you can't just assume because the industry is high pressured that everyone's expected to do that. And if it's not and they get up on that, then that's going to send a ripple effect. And then you think about money. Like money is a secondary thing. But if if it means that white-collar businesses cannot just do this blank, you're going to work whatever hours are necessary, which is in all contracts, then, you know, there's – a lot of businesses are in trouble. I know, but I, I, look, whichever whichever way you come from, Nina or mine, the bottom line is if the FSU succeed against the NAB for that mid-management group, it's not a ripple effect, it's a tidal effect that will yeah. come out of it because it will affect every professional service and project-driven yeah. business. Like we, we're dealing with an engineering business today. During large projects, yeah. they work incredible hours to deliver the project. And can I just say, yeah. as an employer... Somewhere in the middle of this, there has to be a voice of sanity. Somewhere, someone has to go, actually, business doesn't work 38 hours a week. Business works like this based on the level of demand and you've got to be able to meet that level of demand to be success because the world's changed. There is no way they're going to amend that in the Fair Work Act. Don't they? <laughs> they would, the people would do be I really, Do I look like a dinosaur? I just oh thought I'd ask. So you go, yeah, 
as I come through the jungle. Are you the new face of the union? So you should write a place. Well, no, I mean it, man. The fact is. What, oh, I know the opposite. Not look at look at that so. crazy argument that was run by that woman who acted for the teal. Got, oh, Monique Ryan. Yeah, no, uh, uh, I forgot what the name of the woman was who worked for her. Oh, for you. Yeah, who ran this absolute bullshit argument, and the court just sort of looked at her and went, "Sorry, just." To get this right, you're working for a parliamentarian standing for election. You're what? And you were saying eight-hour days are reasonable and some reasonable hours. I think what's going to happen is there's going to be some some clever work done about what are reasonable hours based on the nature of the work you're doing. I think it's going to have to be because it plays into psychological hazards and everything. It does. I just just want to say this. (laughs) When you're doing exciting work, you're progressing your career and you're delivering something important, do you really want someone saying, well, it's... 40 hours, that's two hours extra. Sorry, I've got to lay down the gloves. <laughs> Is that what you want? Gee, I'd possibly be a dinosaur, aren't I? Yeah. On that note, we'll probably talk about dinosaurs a lot next week. Show us a thumbs up or a yeah. hook up if, you, if that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for Bye. watching. Thank See you, you later, guys. Bye-bye.